I wonder where you were the first time that you had your God, where are you moment. You know, it's that moment where things just didn't quite go the way you thought it was supposed to go. That moment when life seems to be unraveling and if God exists at all, it feels like he's nowhere to be found. The Bible's not afraid of our raw emotion. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Psalms, which we've been working through, uh, in fact, encourage us to take steps in wrestling with God, wrestling towards trusting him when all the world around us would lead us to ask, God, where are you? See, it's in those moments where what we believe about God actually becomes relevant. It's easy to profess God's goodness when everything is good. It's easy to profess God's love when life seems to be showering down blessings upon us. It's easy to proclaim that God is wise when everything is working according to our plan. But then we experience our God, where are you moment, and everything changes, right? How can God be good when things aren't good? How can God be love when it feels like life is cursing us? How can God be wise when things aren't working out according to our plan? And this draws out what I feel like is the real issue for us. Do we interpret God's character through our circumstances, or do we interpret our circumstances through God's character? Do we start with life and then create our picture of God, or do we start with God and then create our picture of life? Do we start with a worldview and allow that worldview to shape our view of God, or do we start with our view of God and then interpret everything we see in the world around us through, through who he is? Uh, Psalm 52, where we're going to be this morning, exists to show us that it is precisely when we have our God, where are you, moment. It is in that moment when the deep, abiding, and true realities of God actually become most relevant to us. It is precisely when things are not good that we put all of our hope in the fact that God is good. It is precisely when life is cursing us that we put all of our hope in the fact that God is love. It is precisely when things are not working out just according to our plan that we put all our hope in the fact that God is wise. And I think to, to put it in uh, the context of the scripture, when life seems the craziest and when we seem the most foolish for believing in God, that is when the Spirit of God cries forth in our hearts, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Psalm 52. We're going to read that psalm together and then hopefully unpack it this morning. Psalm 52 To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good 
and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord. So there are four things that we can bank our whole lives on when everything around us in life would be driving us to ask that question, God, where are you? And the first is this, we can trust in God's faithfulness. We can trust in God's faithfulness. Uh, In the superscript to this psalm, the little portion right above verse 1, we learn that David wrote this psalm in the wake of an extremely tragic situation. Uh, A man named Doeg, at the request of Saul, had murdered 85 priests of God. And then uh, just after that, he went and destroyed the entire city in which they lived. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, and every animal was put to the sword. So in the face of this flagrant arrogance and in the face of this ruthless violence, we might think that David would doubt God's faithfulness. How can God be faithful in the face of such evil? But instead of interpreting God through the lens of his situation, he interprets his situation through the faithfulness of God. Rather than being intimidated by the boasting and the worldly strength, David, in verse 1, rebukes Doeg. He says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Doeg represents the epitome of pride and arrogance. He is the man who is swelled with self-confidence. So where do we see self-confidence in our world today? We reward covetousness and call it being driven. We reward faithlessness and call it being a free spirit. We reward ruthlessness and call it being able to get things done. We reward slander and call it not being afraid to tell the truth. We reward sexual promiscuity and call it the freedom of self-expression. We reward arrogance and call it patriotism. Boasting and evil is all around us in our world today. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? How does God become relevant to us when we are surrounded by a world of false confidence? David responds with one simple truth. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. In a world full of false confidence, our confidence is is in this one simple fact, that God is faithful. In marriage, a spouse who is faithful is a spouse who takes those marriage vows seriously, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. But see, there are different aspects to faithfulness. Uh, Sometimes when we talk about God's faithfulness, we talk about uh, his character, the fact that he will never change. Other times when we talk about God's faithfulness, we're talking about his promises, the fact that if he told us he was going to do something, we can be sure that in the end, he's going to make good on that promise. But there's one more aspect to God's faithfulness, 
It's the fact that God is with us at all times. And I think that's what David is talking about here. He says the steadfast love of God endures all the day. That little phrase, all the day, means that at every single moment in the day, God is right there with us. He's he's right there in our lives working in whatever situation we are in. He is faithful. Um, I thought about it like this this week. I was struggling to kind of grapple for an illustration. This is what I thought of. God is like the best public relations person in the world, right? You hire a PR person to spin every story to make it look good. Something that was bad, they take it and they make it look like it was actually a good thing. And God is like that, except he's even better. God doesn't just take the things that come into your life and spin them to look good. He actually takes every single thing that comes into your life and he actually spins it for your good. Every sin, every suffering, every temptation, every moment of weakness, God is right there with you all the day to spin it to your ultimate advantage. He is faithful. Even on our death day, even on our death day, if we have trusted in Christ, God will spin our worst enemy to be for our greatest good as death ushers us into His presence because Jesus has conquered death. So we stand in defiance of false confidence by trusting in God's ever-present faithfulness. Here's the temptation. When we exist in a world where people boast in evil and put, put their confidence in themselves, we can be drawn to respond with our own self-confidence. Think about it. When David heard that, that Doeg had done this, he could have said, Doeg, do you know who I am? God has anointed me to be the next king of Israel. I killed the giant Goliath. You know, they sing a song about me. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. David could have responded to the, to the evil and the self-confidence around him with his own sense of self-confidence, but he won't do that. And our flesh, our flesh cries out in us to do the same thing. When, when we feel the pressure of the world around us, where everybody around us is putting their trust in themselves, we can be tempted to put our trust in ourselves But instead, God says, no, 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 no. When the world boasts in evil, you boast in me. Don't boast in yourself. Don't put your own resume out there. You boast in my faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. So in a world full of false confidence, we can trust in God's faithfulness. Second, when the world around us would drive us to ask, God, where are you? We can trust in God's justice. We can trust in God's justice. Uh, Those who commit injustices have disordered loves. They love the wrong things, and then they manipulate the situation to get whatever they want. David says in verse 4, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. The root of injustice is deception. Uh, Injustice covers up the truth. So, where do we see deceit and deception in our world today? Where do we see injustice? Uh, It is the judge who takes a bribe. It is the employee who finds a way to get more money at work than they deserve. Uh, It is the person who abuses their authority to take what does not belong to them. It is the ability to get away with almost anything because of a smooth tongue, a thick wallet, or a large social network. And who is vulnerable in our world to injustices? 
People who are vulnerable to injustice in our world today are the poor, the unborn, the orphan, the widow, and those in the minority culture, especially in a democratic republic where majority vote wins. Deceit is all around us in our world today, and there are lots of people who take advantage of the vulnerable. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? How does God become relevant to us in a world full of injustice? David responds with one clear conviction. He says in verse 5, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. In a world full of deception and injustice, our trust is in this one simple fact, that God is just. The Christian response to injustice is particularly unique. Uh, We neither ignore injustice, nor do we respond to injustices by taking vengeance ourselves. Uh, We never are called to respond to sin with sin. Romans 12, 19 makes this very clear. It says, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But then, right after telling us not to avenge ourselves at the end of Romans 12, Paul dives right into Romans 13 where he he tells us a little bit about why, uh, why we should value government. This is what he says. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, and here's this word, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has given us a tool for executing his wrath in the earth, on the earth, before the final judgment day. But that's what leads us to our responsibility. We have the responsibility to do whatever we can do, to play whatever part we can play in establishing a just society. Wherever we see evil in the world, we must press in and try to overturn it for good. The late R.C. Sproul uh, wrote in his book, Enjoying God, about a time when he was invited to Washington, D.C. to address a group of Christian uh, people who worked in the Senate. And this is what he said. He said, I pleaded for Christians in Congress to vote according to what is right rather than according to what is politically expedient. One staff person said, unless my boss, a U.S. senator, is willing to compromise for the next several months until the election is over, he will surely lose. If we want Christians to stay in office, they must compromise during an election year so that we will be able to continue for another term. What I hear you saying, Sproul replied, is that in order for us to have the advantage of a man of integrity over the long haul, that man must sacrifice his integrity over the short haul. That is precisely the kind of person I want to get rid of in government. Now, listen guys, I love America. I've thought, I've thought about it. There is no other place that I would rather live. But our top priority in the kingdom of God is not to save America. Our top priority in the kingdom of God is to be faithful to Jesus. And our part is in creating a just society is to do everything we can do using the most pure and righteous and godliest means possible to establish a just society. But listen, where we fail 
in using uh, righteousness and godliness and purity to establish the kind of environment that we want in our culture, it is in that moment where we put our hope in the heavenly city and we trust that God is a God of justice and that in the end, when we've done everything we could with, with the most best righteous means possible, he is going to make all things right in the end. That's where David put his hope. David didn't go running out with a sword trying to kill Doeg. He cried out and he said, God is going to tear you down. His hope was in God's justice, not in his own ability to establish justice. So here's the temptation. When we live in a world of deception and injustice, we can be tempted to respond to injustice in the way of the world. For some of us, that means attempting to play God and avenge ourselves. And for others of us, that means to detach in despair over the hopelessness of the situation. But in light of God's ultimate justice, Christians of all people have a resource to respond to injustice in a way that the world has never seen. We don't have to be cornered into this or into that because we have higher goals. Our goal is not ultimately the establishment of a just society. Our goal is the glory of God. And because our highest goal is the glory of God, we don't have to be captured by fear of trying to protect and save this land that we love. Now, let me try to put some meat on the bones. If Christian politicians lose because they stood up for their Christian values, they are blessed in the kingdom of God. If you and I vote with all integrity before God, and we find ourselves to be in the minority, and we lose, we are blessed in the kingdom of God. If you stick your neck out to speak up for somebody, a person of color, or, or, or to stick up for the unborn, and you are slandered and ridiculed for it, you are blessed in the kingdom of God. We lose our religious freedom. We are going to keep on praising Jesus. If we lose our free speech, we are going to keep proclaiming the gospel. And if we lose our right to bear arms, we are going to put all our trust for security in God. Because it is in those moments when the things in life that make us strong are stripped from us, that the Spirit of God explodes with power through the church. Guys, our hope is not in our earthly freedoms. Our hope is in Jesus. And He is a just judge, and He is going to make all things right. And so we do whatever we can do. We go right up to the edge, and we fight as hard as we can with those godly and righteous and good means. And thank you, if you serve to protect those freedoms, thank you so much. And in the end, if we end up losing them, we can trust that we serve a God who is just. We can put our faith in Him just like David did. So in a world full of deception and injustice, we can trust in God's justice. Third, when the world around us would drive us to ask, God, where are you? We can trust in God's love. We can trust in God's love. Now at this point in the psalm, verses 6-8, through eight, David contrasts the man of the world and the man of faith. He says, The righteous shall see and fear and laugh at him, saying, 
See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Many people put their refuge in the abundance of riches. Many, many people put their hope and try to find refuge in anything and everything but God. But those things that we put our trust in, they never actually protect us. Those idols that we try to seek refuge in, in the end, they are empty. So where do we see emptiness in our world today? People in our world run for refuge to success. People in our world run for refuge to the opinions of others. People in our world run for refuge to financial security, to political leadership, to the love of a man or a woman. Our refuge is whatever we run to for safety and security. And I think the scariest part about this is it can literally be anything. Food, sex, family, sports, work, social media, anything and everything, we can turn that into a refuge. So let me ask you a tough question. What in your life, if it was taken from you, would make you feel vulnerable? What in your life, if it was taken from you, would make you feel vulnerable? Can we just be honest? For most of us, if we just left our cell phone at the house for the day, we would feel vulnerable. We would feel completely afraid and scared like we don't know what to do with our lives. Right? We have made a refuge out of so many things. And as we see in this passage... Those things are empty. So with emptiness all around us, what are we to do? How are we to respond? How does God become relevant to us in a world full of emptiness? Well, David responds with a clear contrast. He says, but I am like an olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. In a world full of emptiness, we are banking everything for our security and our satisfaction on this one fact, that God is love. Uh, we went out back in February, I'm sure like some of you did, and decided that we were going to spruce, spruce up our yard a little bit. You know, we had a little extra time on our hands, and so uh, I started making trips back and forth to Lowe's. I think I made at least, well, first service it was three or four, this service is probably four or five. Uh, it was a lot of trips, all right? We went to Lowe's a lot. And every time I would go to Lowe's, I would pick out some nice flowers or, or a lush you know, plant to bring home and, and put, in the, put in the yard. And uh, it, it just seemed like after a few weeks, those flowers would always just start to shrivel up and those leaves would start to turn brown. And here we are now, a few months later, and almost everything I bought has completely dissolved into oblivion. Uh, almost nothing that I have is still nice and, and looking good. See, uh, when those plants are there in that greenhouse at Lowe's and they get just the right amount of sun and just the right amount of water, man, those things look great. They look beautiful. But when they get brought into my backyard, they just get totally scorched by the sun and, and I don't water them like I should, and so they die. Now, somebody after this service is going to come up to me and you're going to say, hey, you know those plants, they come with a little tag on them and that tag tells you where you're supposed to plant it, and how much sun is supposed to get, and how much water is supposed to have. It's supposed to help you keep the plant alive. And listen, I know that, okay? <laughs> but I think that in some ways, to me, makes this illustration. <clears throat> if there were a little tag hanging from each of us, and on that tag it read, Conditions for Survival, 
the only thing that would be on that tag is it would say, must believe that God loves me. God's love is the greenhouse for human flourishing. His love is the only environment in which you and I can survive. We were made to rest in His love. And it is only when we sink the roots of our, of our trust down into His love that we can begin to flourish in any situation. We can be, like David says, like a green olive tree in the house of God. Remember, guys, he's saying this in the midst of an extreme tragedy. An entire city was murdered. And David is saying, because my trust is in your love, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I want to give you three reasons that you can trust in God's love. Three reasons that you can sink your, uh, the roots of your trust into the fact that God loves you. The first is this, or I'll, just, I'll mention them and then we'll go through it. His love is perfect, His love is pure, and His love is proved. So, okay, God's love is perfect. That means that God cannot love you any more, and He cannot love you any less. His love for you is perfect. Also, His love for you is pure. That means when God loves you, He doesn't need anything from you in return. He's the only person that when He loves you, He doesn't need anything back from you. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> Everybody else who loves you needs something from you in return. But not God. His love is pure. And finally, and this is probably my favorite, His love is proved. Which means that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He can't love us any more or any less. There are no strings attached to His love. And in those moments when we're questioning, where we're wondering, could God really love me? He bids us to look at the cross and see that if He gave His only Son for us, it must mean that He loves us. It must mean that He cares for us. Here's the temptation. We have lots of reasons to be insecure. Lots of reasons to fear. Lots of reasons to doubt if God could really love us or not. And I think it just seems so easy to want to run to food or sex or sports or family or work or social media for refuge. But there is only one place that is truly secure. One place that you and I were meant to flourish. And that is in the context of the love of God. I heard something funny this week. I feel like I maybe already believed this but I had just never heard anybody say it before. And so I just want to pass this along just to maybe help you get a sense of God's love for you. There was a man named John Owen. He was a Puritan. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase what he said. He said, I never pray for God to love anybody. 
I pray for him to comfort them. I pray for him to forgive them. I pray for him to heal them. But I never pray for him to love them because it would be a worthless prayer. God already loves them so much that he could not increase his love for them even if he wanted to. The only prayer that we find in the Bible regarding God's love is not a prayer that he would love us. It is a prayer that we would be able to grasp how deep and how high and how wide his love for us already is. So I want to invite you today to put your trust in Jesus and maybe for the first time today to move from saying, God loves me to God loves me out of the scorching heat of sin, out of the scorching heat of self-confidence into the greenhouse of God's love. I would love if every single one of us could leave here today saying, God loves me. So in a world full of emptiness, we can trust in God's love. Finally, when the whole world around us would drive us to ask God, where are you? We can trust in God's goodness. We can trust in God's goodness. Finally, here in verse 9, David turns to talk to God. He says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is in the face of serious suffering, flagrant evil, and devastating sin. And David is thanking God? He won't let his circumstances shape his view of God. He won't interpret God's character by what's happening around him. Instead, he is determined to interpret what's happening around him through God's character. So how do we trust in God's goodness? How do we trust in God's goodness in a world full of evil? I think first, we follow David's example and we begin thanking God for all the things that he has done. We begin thanking him for the fact that in Christ, it is finished. We start looking back and we start seeing all the many ways that God has proved faithful in our lives, that God has proved just in our lives, that God has been loving to us in our lives. But it's not just that. We don't just look back and thank Him. We also actively wait for God. We refuse to give in to self-confidence because we're waiting on God's faithfulness. We refuse to give in to self-vengeance, to taking things into our own hands because we trust in God's goodness. And we refuse to go refuge hunting, trying to find something to fill that emptiness, because we trust that God's lo God loves us. The reason that we can proclaim that God is good is because we know that He is faithful, He is just, and He is loving. And if He's faithful, and if He's just, and He's loving, then it, then it must be that He is good. But then it changes the question. It's no longer, is God good or not? The question becomes, do we trust God enough to trust His timing? It's no longer if God is good, it's do we trust Him enough to trust His timing? See, when we get tired of waiting on God's faithfulness, then we just end up pursuing self-confidence. When we get tired of waiting on God's justice, then we just pursue our own vengeance. When we get tired of waiting on God's love, then we just run towards the emptiness of 
of the refuges of the world. When it comes to trusting God's timing, we must embrace the tension of the already, not yet. See, it's right there in verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it already. It's done. You've done it. I will wait for your name for it is good. Not yet. You've done it already. And yet I'm still waiting. Uh, Let me try to illustrate this for you a little bit. This is what I mean by already, not yet. Uh, I've noticed that as technology has grown, I no longer get paper tickets uh, when I go to an event or even when I get on an airplane anymore. Um, I uh, download the tickets onto my phone and they're all right there in my wallet on my iPhone so that when I go up to the gate or, or the, the, the game or whatever it is, I can just you know, scan, my, scan my phone there. But sometimes leading up to that event, I start to get a little nervous and I, and I double check my phone. Sometimes you know, five or six times I'll go back and check my phone and make sure it's you know, the right ticket, it's in my thing, I got my phone charged, you know, it's the right date. I mean, how sad would it be you know, to show up at a a Braves game, and for them to say, scan it and say, you know, sir, this ticket was actually for yesterday's game. I mean, that would just be terrible. So I check those things, man. I make sure that I've got the right thing. But, but this, is, this is what's so cool about it. It's such a great picture of the already not yet because the ticket is already purchased. It's already in my phone. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to put any more payment down on it. And even though I'm not sitting in the seat yet, even though I haven't entered, entered in and gotten on the plane yet, I am assured, I am guaranteed that I'm going to get on that plane or I'm going to get to that Braves game. And that is what the already not yet is like. See, we look back to the cross. We look back to what God has done in Jesus and we say, it is finished. It is done. And sometimes we need to go back there again and again and again and again because when we see that, when we see what he has done, it gives us assurance of what he's going to do. We sing about his cross. We sing about his blood because it gives us a confidence that we're going to get to go through that gate. We praise God for what He's done, what He's already done, while we wait for what He has not yet done. We live in the tension of the already not yet. Here's one more thing. While we wait in the tension of the already not yet, when when we're being driven to ask that question, God, where are you? When we're struggling to trust in God's timing, God remains, I am. Look at how interesting this is. Listen, we never talk this way. In verse 9, David said, I will wait for your name, for it is good. We never, we never say that to anybody else. We never say, I'll see you next week, I'll be waiting on your name. Right? We, don't, we don't do that. But David says that because he knows God's name. He knows that God is I am. Are you here, God? I am. Are you working in my suffering? I am. Are you coming to my rescue? I am. Are you truly faithful? Are you actually good? I am. In the tension of the already not yet, when we're being asked to wait on God, 
The God who we are waiting on is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He remains at all times and in all things. I am. So as we conclude this morning, you may be struggling to trust in God. You may be struggling to interpret your circumstances through His character. You may be ready to give up on God's timing, give up on His delayed faithfulness or delayed justice. And so I just want to encourage you with one last thought. This is how we're going to finish up this morning. Uh, David was no lone ranger. He did not think that he had the strength in and of himself to trust in God's timing, to trust in God's goodness. And so he points us in one last place in verse 9. He says, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. None of us always trust in God's faithfulness. None of us always trust in God's justice. None of us always trust in God's love. And so many times what we need to be able to look through the fog and actually see God's goodness is that we need the people of God in our lives. In his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, David Powlison said, Left to yourself, you blindly react. God seems invisible, silent, far away. It's hard to remember anything else. Hard to put into words what is actually happening. Hard to feel any force of who Jesus Christ is. The worst place to be in the midst of our sufferings is left to ourselves. We have to do whatever we have to do to get ourselves into the midst of the godly ones. The godly ones who will sing with us. The godly ones who will weep with us. The godly ones who will read God's word and pray with us. The godly ones who will remind us when we're acting crazy. Right? The, godly one, the godly ones who will call us out when we are responding to sin with sin. But here's the deal. We call this series Walking with God. But this is the truth we need to remember. We aren't just walking with God. We are walking with God together. We are a community who together are declaring that God is faithful. Right? We are a group, not just an individual. We are a group who comes together and declares that God is just. We are a family who constantly remind ourselves that all of our safety and security comes from this one fact that God is love. And we are a church who pushes and prods and drives one another to rejoice in the fact that in all things and at all times and no matter what we're waiting on, God is good. He's the great I am. We're not just walking with God. We are walking with God together. So uh, when everything around us in the world would be pushing us and driving us to ask, God, where are you? The Spirit of God is crying out in our hearts saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We will not interpret our, life, uh, our view of God through our life circumstances. Instead, we will interpret our circumstances through the impeachable character of God. And here's the deal, guys. If we go down, 
so be it. We are going to go down singing, take the world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we declare your faithfulness, your justice, your love, your goodness this morning, knowing that none of us here have the strength. None of us have the ability, the willpower to always be faithful to you, but God, you are always faithful to us. God, show us creative ways, even in this time, show us creative ways to get ourselves in the presence of the godly ones. We need you and we need your people. And so, Lord, we feel the tension of our own hearts. We confess this morning, we believe in you and yet we struggle to believe in you. We proclaim you're just and yet sometimes we still feel the need to take out our own vengeance. We know that you love us and yet we still run to fill our emptiness in the refuges of this world. So God, I just pray by your spirit this morning, you'd strip us down to where all we have is you, all we have is your goodness, all we have is your love. God, teach us how to live in the tension of the already, not yet. Teach us how to wait on you well. We thank you forever, Lord. We thank you, we praise you. You are a wonderful God. You are so precious to us. So we worship you today. It's in Jesus' holy, precious name that we worship. Amen.